that many, many people deep down inside don't experience an unshakable, unconditional inner peace, contentment, and love. It's very conditional based on their circumstances and what reviews they got on their book on Amazon or, you know, who, how, that, how somebody spoke to them a moment ago. It's very uh, dependent on externalities, which to me uh, makes people really vulnerable. Welcome to The Ziegler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and I'm here to inspire your true performance. From the framework established by Zig Ziegler, one of the top motivators and personal development leaders our world has ever known, who believed we could all be more, do more, and have more. How? Improve ourselves, beginning with how we think about ourselves. So today, let's break down some personal development. Hi, friends. So here you go. Do you want to be happy, joyful, and at peace? Well, I can't imagine anyone would say no, of course. But as humans, we generally look to our circumstances to provide those things. Well, something else is being resilient, meaning able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions and having happiness, joyfulness, and peacefulness, regardless of the circumstances. So in this show, we get to what I'm almost tempted to label a root issue of our personal performance, but that doesn't really feel like it does it just justice to talk about personal performance. I mean, it's, it's our very selves, our joy, our peace, our lives we're talking about here. Rick Hansen is a psychologist whose focus is neuroscience, and he wrote the book Hardwiring Happiness that my business partner, who's a medical doctor, said I've got to read. Uh, really focused on brain training and the relevance, the profoundness of the brain. So I went to buy the book and saw that Rick Hansen had a new book called Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. So I had to do more than just buy the book. I contacted him. That's why we're here today. Now, folks, this isn't merely about feeling good, okay? Don't get caught up in just the word happiness and a, and a temporary feel good. I mean, because you can get that temporary feel good from many things, as you know, by circumstances. But we're talking the foundation of ourselves, being calm in any situation, strong overall, having true enduring happiness. Those are not easy things to attain, and few truly have them long term. So all that we strive for every day, I mean, there's for an ultimate, ultimate goal. What is it? Is it to be miserable or happy and joyful? Is it to be stressed out and worried or at peace? So this is not just theory we're talking about. It comes from Rick's research. It's an eye-opening, profound conversation. A quick background on Rick Hansen. He's a PhD, a psychologist, senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and New York Times bestselling author. His books are available in 28 languages. And include the book that we're talking about, the message of Resilient Today, the book Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature. He's founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. In 2016, he gave a keynote address at the annual meeting of the American Psychological Association. So you can find Rick's books at rickhanson.net. But if you're as intrigued by what you hear as I believe you'll be, really encourage you to go to thefoundationsofwellbeing.com where you can literally engage with Rick's methodology and neuroscience for yourself. Again, it's thefoundationsofwellbeing.com. So I'm going to bring Rick on right now after I share some great resources with you. Okay, folks, get ready to equip your happiness, your peace, and your resilience. Here is Rick Hansen. 
Well, Rick, as we've just been chatting, my my partner, the doctor, has dog-eared your book, Hardwiring Happiness, and told me so often. So I was really excited to see the new book. I've got questions about that. But first off, just really honored to grab you here, especially as I hear you're about to head off on to a year sabbatical. Yeah, I'm writing my next book. And Kevin, I just want to also say to you and to the people listening, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I hope it's useful for people. Well, it's already useful for me. So thank you uh, very much. Well, I, you know, as I always do, I like the personal story. It gives us a little context and you start the book off, uh, resilient book off with a little bit of your story as a six year old outside your house during, uh, sounds like an argument had the realization of what you later cited as the need for compassion for yourself. But to me, it was interesting for a child of six years old. I've got lots of kids, so I've got lots of experience here for them to, uh, be that cognizant and somewhat separate yourself from your, your parents and what they're dealing with to give yourself some own care is a pretty remarkable, uh, well, obviously it led to, it led to what you're doing today, I guess, but that's pretty significant and a little bit outside of the norm. Wouldn't you say? It might be in some of the details. On the other hand, as someone also, we've got two adult kids and I've worked with kids a lot. I've done a lot of child therapy. My, I have a background in developmental psychology. I worked in a lot of schools, including a lot of preschools with little kids. And it's striking how often adults, maybe you, can speak about early experiences in which there was a knowing that maybe was hard to put into words at the time, even very young experiences. And that knowing and and even intentions that started to come forward, like, this is how I want to be about this going forward, or this is a question that I really am burned up about, or I really want to understand, like, why? Um, Those kind of early experiences are very real, and they can have a lot of effect on people over the course of their life. Uh, For example, in terms of adult development, there's good research that shows that kind of the dreams, they're, they're called, that people had for their lives when they were young, including kind of more of a feeling dream, like, oh, I want to help people, or I want to understand, or I want to play, or music I love, I want to get into music. Uh, Those dreams we have for life when we're kids can also make a big difference. Uh, I'm making a sign of a kind of an arc, trajectory over time. As I sit here, I'll just say it out loud for those that are listening. So yeah, that was a central experience for me. I was... um, uh, and it, it summarized, I'm sure, many other experiences that I don't recall. But in that experience, uh, as you know, um, I'm standing outside my parents' home, my family home in Illinois. Um, I was probably six years old, if not a little younger even. And looking back at the house, I was just very aware uh, in a poignant, wistful, but clear way that there was a lot of unnecessary unhappiness there. And it wasn't my fault. It it just wasn't my fault. And that realization right there, I don't know where it came from. So many causes produce our results inside us. And we, we can't claim credit for many of them and we can't blame ourselves for many of them. They're there. And for whatever reason, that clarity was definitely there. It was bone deep in me at the time and it's bone deep in me today. And I think that's really an important distinction for a lot of people to get that they're in situations, including when they're little, where, it's it's not their fault. They got to deal with it. It's their responsibility to deal with. But it's not their fault that it's happening. And kids often blame themselves for what's happening in their families. And so for me, that was the beginning of both a strong sense of compassion for myself, you know, just 
a kind of a warm hearted friendliness, you know, which is so important because without it, you're not going to take action and make your life better in terms of self-improvement. And also there was a really strong feeling that um, I had to get on my own side, that it was going to be up to me, that I couldn't just sort of drift along or be dead in the water circling the drain. I needed to actually put my hand on the tiller, turn on the engine and chart my course. And there too, again, as a guy myself, spent a lot of time with people in self-development broadly from mm-hmm. therapy to spiritual practices. Uh, you know, if you don't have that status, that feeling inside that you are going to be for yourself and it's on you and you're going to do it and you have the right to take care of yourself, you're also going to be dead in the water. So anyway, thanks for pulling that up. That was a very central experience for me and a lot is in it that I keep drawing on now, you know, many, many years later. Well, obviously, and that's where we're so often talking about, yeah, you mentioned that just the trajectory of your life. So when you, when you find yourself here as this child, and then as later you start your work vocationally in this direction, was it a fairly streamlined trajectory in that direction? Or did you have some deviations before you came back? There were a lot of zigs and zags. Um, so I went into college when I was pretty young. It was the height of the human potential movement, mm-hmm. tail end of the 60s, early 70s, UCLA. That got me really interested in human potential, but I kind of didn't know what to do with it. And um, when I look back on the choices I made as a tw- early, as a young adult, I'm really struck, as I am with regard to many young adults, the unfortunate uh, bad combination of really big consequences. Because the choices you make uh, ripple forward over your entire lifespan. And, you know, you suddenly decide to uh, change your academic program or break up with that person or suddenly move across the country or stay with that crazy roommate. Whatever it is, you make these choices. And then you look back 10, 20 years later and you realize, wow, that was a fork in the road. So the choices are consequential in your early 20s. But your capacity to make good choices in your mm-hmm. teens and 20s is fairly limited, you know, compared to wisdom and mm-hmm. self-control and so forth over time. So I made some poor choices, I think, right out of college. I didn't bet on myself in some ways. I didn't, I didn't have the background in my family to realize there were certain opportunities that if I pursued them like graduate school, um, that could turn out well. So there were definitely some zigs and zags over about a 10-year period. Uh, until I finally realized, whoa, I ought to go to grad school. I had to invest in myself, you know, because even though there'll be some costs, especially time, but also some money, those costs are amortized across the long trajectory of a career and the benefits accumulate exponentially over that time, which is another kind of key insight and key reason for investing in yourself when you're young in any way that makes sense to you. For me, graduate school makes sense. So I did it. But when I look back on all that, Kevin, you know, I'm rereading Dune right now, the science fiction classic yeah. of Frank Herbert. I highly recommend it. And um, I read it the first time when I was 15, which if you've read the book, or, uh, the main character is 15 when the book starts. And it's a remarkable uh, book and a remarkable beginning to the book. And, and the key insight I had right around that time, and I knew it because I kind of related to the book, was that no matter how bad the past had been, or no matter how miserable a person is in the present, in this case me, there are always opportunities every day, every week, every year for learning, healing, and growth, training, 
of yourself, development of yourself over time. And when that landed on me right around age 15, that made me so happy because I realized there was something I could do for the future. And bit by bit, day by day, I could accumulate learning and growth along the way. So I think that theme, how do you, no, pardon me, that theme that number one, learning is incredibly important because it's the superpower that grows the other superpowers, it's the strength of strengths. And therefore, second, learning how to learn, getting good at emotional learning, body learning, attitudinal learning, character learning, spiritual learning is probably the most important thing a person can get good at. Get good at learning because getting good at learning helps you get good at everything else. That theme definitely has characterized my whole career. And recently, the last 10 years, I've been especially interested in how that process unfolds in the brain. Yeah. Okay. So as you look at this, and we're going to start digging into some of the specifics of this book, Resilient, in your own, in your message, just still before we leave your personal story, do you see this as a culmination of your own experiences and learning? Or were there some times when you really found yourself in the, in the crucible of this need for resilience, this need for, I mean, that was a saving grace in essence. Oh, wow. And I hope I'm not blathering on here. You're a good listener, so I'll just keep going. That's what I'm asking for. I want to hear. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short and hopefully sweet. Um, well, uh, first, I would describe my childhood as like a C minus um, on average, maybe a little worse. I'm not trying to say it was as bad as many people's. And still, it's striking that even in a C minus childhood, adding up over time, even landing on someone who... In my own case, I'm, I'm fairly calm. I'm fairly sturdy in my biological constitution. Still, it had a lot of impact over time. Lots of little bad things add up over time, just like lots of little good things add up as well. So I had to be resilient, not just for uh, so much a particular crisis. We tend to think of resilience um, in, in terms of surviving the worst day of your life. It's necessary for surviving that worst day of your life or that really horrible, difficult three months or combat tour, something that happens. But where we really need resilience is day to day, dealing with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, dealing with other people, dealing with our bodies, dealing with the stuff that arises in our minds, dealing with disappointments, setbacks, frustrations, losses, challenges, obstructions. We need it every day. So I definitely needed it every day in my childhood in general. And then in terms of some major events, there were definitely some major events with other people that were like shocking rejections or betrayals that, you know, I had to kind of deal with. Uh, and also I've done a lot in the wilderness. I've been a longtime rock climber. I've dealt with really, really hairy life and death situations with myself and other people. And to just get through those situations, including nearly drowning one time and, and kelp and um well, skin diving and, and other kinds of things, I definitely have come to appreciate. I think what my dad probably knew growing up on a ranch in North Dakota as a born in 1918, a cowboy, mm. gradually becoming a fishing game guy and a scientist, a zoologist. You've got to, what you have inside yourself is, is what you can count on when everything falls apart. External conditions, structures, money, relationships, your house, those are important things. Those are good things. But very often the bottom will fall out. And then there you are with what you've got inside you. And I think many, many people discover that when the bottom falls out, they've actually been propped up 
by their circumstances and their passing experiences over the years, but they had not internalized those experiences, as I know we'll get into, and turned those experiences into inner strengths of different kinds, mm. like resilience or happiness or confidence or knowing how to be effective with other people. And so that is really a key motivator for what interests me, not so much gilding a lily, you know, having yet a happier middle-class life, mm. uh, but really realizing that to deal with tough things, including the tough things still remaining inside our own minds, we need to grow these strengths inside. Like I was, I was saying, grit, determination, and happiness itself, which is a major bulwark of resilience. Well, so when you talk about this word resilience, which I have heard, and I feel like it's, it's somewhat of a growing term. I don't feel like it's a mainstream understanding like a word of, you know, courage or, or bravery. And when I, as I looked at that, so I'm going to give you a layman's question here. Oh yeah. Great. You know, we have, we're so enamored uh, these days with the superhero movies and, you know, courage and bravery. And I'm interested in these characters that they have where they show, they have these dramatic healing powers, you know, whatever happened, I think the X-Men, you know, and, and something happens and they can heal right away. And as opposed to the courage and the bravery and the things that are, are a, a going out and taking action, this felt to me, and I'm going to ask you if I'm on the, the right wavelength again, from a layman's term perspective of resilience is more like that healing power. This thing happened. It did happen. It's it's we're in the midst of it now. This is the aftermath. Am I resilient or not? And I like the term you just gave of, am I, was I, is this showing that I've been propped up by some things or do I actually have that strength? So help us really conceptualize that term resilient because I'm, I'm finding myself, I want to embrace that and to say, I am growing in and becoming resilient. That's great. Um, so it really has two major aspects, resilience. One is <clears throat> that you can recover rapidly and successfully from a, from a shock or a wave coming through you, right? You, you recover. So you have a trauma, you have a loss, uh, something happens, someone yells at you in a meeting, you can find your footing pretty quickly. You recover. And the other understanding of resilience or aspect of it is that you can keep on going in the face of challenge, okay. particularly in flexible and adaptable ways. There are people who they know one thing and they know it really well, but that's all they know. And as long as um, they're in situations that call for that one thing, like they know how to be bossy and angry and dominating. Right. And if that works for them, great. But you push them out of their comfort zone, they don't know what to do. For example, I've known many people, often men, who have a lot of physical courage. But interpersonally, they have a, they're, they're not courageous. It's very scary for them to be emotionally vulnerable or exposed or just transparent and real with other people, for example. So, you know, it's, resilience is something that crosses different situations. I think of it as like the keel of a sailboat. Uh, I sa- have sailed a fair, some and uh, I capsized a boat with no keel. You know, if you don't have that thing that's that's mm-hmm. that sticks down beneath the hull, uh, you can flip your boat really easily. Uh, and uh, resilience in life is like having a really deep keel in the water, because then when the waves come, they move you. You're affected by them. It's not about positive thinking or seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. You're affected, but you're not swamped. You can recover, and also you can keep on going toward your your goal, your course. You could stay your course. You may need to zig and zag a bit, but you can stay your course. The other thing 
is that as you grow, what I call this unshakable core inside yourself over time, and you feel it in your body. It's not just this heady thing. You really feel it in your body because that's what we tap into when the going gets really rough, what it feels like in our own bodies. Um, as you grow that unshakable core, you get more confident. You get more ambitious because you know, I can handle the big waves of life. And you know, if I get zapped from time to time and bonked really hard, that's okay. I'll recover and I can keep going. So then you become much more willing to go out and sail the deep dark blue. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Okay, I, I want to dig into that, but I do want to ask, as I was aware, your book, Hardwiring Happiness, that's the one that my my uh, best friend and business partner has dog-eared to death and, and what brought me to this interview. He said, you've got to read this, and I found the book uh, Resilient, which is your new one. What is the evolution of what you came forward with in Hardwiring Happiness and that message and that uh, you know, your own research and experience yeah. understanding and what's the evolution now to this book and message of resilient. Okay, great. Thanks. Hardwiring happiness is about how to turn passing experiences that you're having every day. You're thinking, you're thinking thoughts, you're learning new ideas, you're getting inspired, you're relaxing, you feel strong, you feel connected to your friend, to your dog, you accomplish something. Lots of experiences we're having the problem is, if you think about it, most of them don't sink in. They don't sink in. And there's a lot of research on this in different kinds of clinical settings, medical and mental health settings. You see it in human resources training. You see it in human potential. We all know it, right? There we are. We're talking to our friend. Yeah, I'm always, I'm going to do that exercise thing. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to my wife that way or something like that. And then the next month, the next day, the next week, same old, same old. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how? to turn these passing experiences into lasting changes in your brain. Because if you can change your brain in a lasting way, then you've got the benefits with you wherever you go. This is the essence really of self-reliance. So this is a way of talking about what I said earlier that I realized when I was 15 about the fundamental importance of learning rather than defined. How do you learn now? How do you actually do it? So hardwiring happiness is about that. Mm -hmm. It's about the neuropsychological factors for a totally general audience in very mainstream settings that people can use on their own in any situation, a formal situation like a training at work or an informal moment with your partner or your kid where you realize, whoa, it would be better to be like this rather than that in the future. And boom, boom, you help it really land. So next time you're that way, the next time it happens. So that's what hardwiring happiness is about. It's about the general skills of uh, steepening your growth curve as you go through life every day. Then in resilient, uh, I apply those general, that general technology, if you will, from the inside out. You're doing it yourself uh, in the flow of everyday life. And we'll get into the how of it. It's really simple. It's shockingly simple, except it's also shocking that we don't do it, right? right. So anyway, in Resilient, um, I applied those with our son, uh, Forrest, who wrote the book with me. He's a great guy. I should credit him definitely for this. <laughs> um, we, uh, we apply those general methods to growing 12 key strengths, like, as you said at the beginning, compassion, yeah. mindfulness. Courage is one of those strengths, especially interpersonal courage, motivation, aspiration, intimacy, gratitude. Um, generosity even is a beautiful strength. 
So uh, if you could think of it as hardwiring happiness is kind of like the toolbox. And then in resilient, we grow 12 wonderful houses. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to hit a core level issue here that I see amongst people who like myself have grown up in a world of leading, influencing, serving, caring for others. And this feels like one, like, like a significant message of saying to do that. Well, we need to step back and I'm going to use the word self care, um, because it's still one that I see in my own life and, and, in relationships that I know it's still one that is not very tangible. Maybe hasn't been addressed very uh, specifically and harnessed, I would say. And we still have that, you know, cultural in this demographic aspect of pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And I see you saying, okay, we need to step back and, and, and take care of ourselves, strengthen ourselves. And you say this, I saw this in some of the literature uh, that I got maybe in the press packet or, or, or whatnot, that it can feel, and I, and I'm going to do this first person. I have fallen to this where it almost feels selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you hit on this, so I'm just going to, I'm going to, there, I just paved the way there to I do not want anyone to discount this message because it is not at all selfish. It is absolutely about caring for others better, caring for ourselves so that we can. But I still have that own seed in my own head that I have to deal with. So help us out here. Yeah, maybe a way into it um, is to use the term from Alcoholics Anonymous. They use the acronym HALT, H-A-A-L-T, H-A-L-T. And they say, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, halt, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And we all know that experience when we feel like we're running on empty, what are we more likely to be? I definitely know that for myself as a dad and a husband uh, and a guy in business as well. Uh, when I'm you know, that way at all, when I'm running on fumes, I'm more irritable, less patient, more prickly, more likely to frankly be a jerk with somebody else. And on the other hand, we all know that when we feel like we're running on full, when we um, are not hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, when in fact we um, feel energetic or rested, when we have an underlying core sense of inner peace, contentment, and warm-heartedness, which really are not pie in the sky. Those are available to us. We want them. We can have them. And you know, my whole work and that of other related people, including yours, Kevin, is about how really to have that growing, fundamental, unconditional sense inside yourself already as you meet the next moment of inner peace, contentment, and warm heartedness. You know, when we're there, we're much more likely to be um, positive, to see opportunities. A lot of research shows this. We're more likely to see the big picture. When we're upset, uh, when we're unhappy, when we feel hollow inside, hungry inside, our view of the world sh shrinks and collapses. We're less likely to be creative in problem solving, including in business settings. Again, research shows that. Um, also, when we are, um, when we feel our own internal needs are being met for safety, for satisfaction, mm -hmm. and connection, these are the three fundamental needs of any human as well as non-human animals safety, satisfaction, and connection. When we feel inside that there's a sufficiency of needs being met in the moment, then we're much more able to be attentive to the needs of others. 
we don't feel so desperate inside ourselves. So you're exactly right. I mean, to use the cliche, and it's still really true, as they say in the airplanes, put on your own oxygen mask first. And as you fill yourself up, you've got more inside you as your own cup around the Togo to give to other people. Well, and a quote right out of the book is that I just uh, was enamored with is well-being comes from meeting our needs, not denying them. And honestly, again, made me think of some of the superhero movies where you just expend yourself for everybody. But it also made me think of a book that we own in our home, uh, The Giving Tree. Where beautiful book, beautiful book, but it almost made me uh, cringe a little bit at the concept of the giving tree. Folks, if you don't know that it is about uh, just a paraphrase, you know, a, 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 a tree and in, in the literal sense in the book that gives and gives and gives to this boy who becomes a man. And at the end, there's nothing left of the tree. And I understand that from the conceptual standpoint, but in essence of what you're talking about here, yeah, at the end, the tree had nothing left to give. It was in essence dead. And when we do that, there's nothing left to give. So back to well-being, it almost feels like the, uh, the well-being is a, so that I, I need my own well-being so that I can adequately, efficiently, successfully do these other things, serve people in that essence. It made me think of Zig Ziglar's quote, a positive thinking won't let you do anything, but it'll let you do everything better than negative thinking will. When I, so in, in that, That's a great line. It is a great, I love that line. And so with this well-being, the more I do take care of my own well-being, now obviously, I guess we should, you know, people have been burned, I'm sure, by somebody who's made their own well-being. I, again, first yep. person I have who have made, they've made well-being, their focus for life. And that's all that they do is spend 24 hours a day focused on their well-being. And I'm wondering, what does that serve except for that one person? I can't really relate to that. So let's, let's put that on that side. Over here, though, is the side of the giving tree where we just give everything. We don't t- attend to our well-being. In the middle, if we can keep that balance, would you say, of well-being, keep myself healthy and well, that's what enables me to do, like Zig said, everything better than without it. Yes. I think the way you said right there, the in the middle okay. is what I've seen in my own life. And I think what research shows too, that um, the art is to do two things. It's to be a moral, compassionate, generous person. I think that's really important for both your own self-interest long-term and also for, for moral reasons uh, to be, to be caring toward other people, to have a, a moral spine on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, it's also true that just as you said, to be able to sustain giving day in and day out. My very first book was about how to support mothers over the long haul and their partner uh, in for the sake of children, as well as for the sake of parents. Because when, as research shows, when parents burn out, kids suffer. When parents' relationship falls apart, kids suffer. When parents themselves are running on fumes, kids suffer. So if you want to take care of kids, and I have a deep commitment to children, take good care of their parents, Mm. Uh, take good care of families. Uh, We would change this planet in a generation if we made the welfare of parents the number one public policy objective and just did what we needed to do for that sake. In a generation, this planet would change. That said, meanwhile, uh, the cavalry doesn't look like it's coming, and it's a lot on us to uh, take care of ourselves. And as we grow, um, well-being inside, as well as capabilities, it's not just about sitting on the cushion, you know, gazing at your navel. It's about growing capabilities. So you're more skillful with other people. You're more skillful in running your business or running your forklift. 
and you're also more skillful with your own thoughts and feelings, which is the foundation of everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, they go together in an upward spiral. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you're right. There are people. I grew up in L.A. a little bit around people who are sometimes hollow and shallow and pretty narcissistic. And um, it is true that sometimes that as people become you know, more successful and wealthier, they, they can forget about other people. And um, that said, on the whole, when people have that bone deep feeling of contentment, well-being, fullness inside, enoughness, they usually are more generous to other people. And I would say as well, I've known a number of really successful people who don't feel it. They, they're driven. They, they're, they remind me of this hell realm out of Tibet, the so-called realm of the hungry ghosts who have these vast powers and enormous appetites, but they can't satisfy their appetites. So they're always hungry, hungry, hungry for more. And I think behind the, the you know, well-manicured face and tailored suit and fancy houses behind gated walls, many people, there's a deep discontent inside that makes themselves miserable and often people around them. So it's not just the outer trappings of success that matter, but that we feed our hearts, right? not just our bank accounts. Okay. Well, you use that word right there, deep discontent. I was going to ask right now with this book, obviously I could say, you know, it's part of your own fruition of your own journey and your own learning. Um, but when you look at the culture right now, where do you see us? Is this a growing deficit? of the lack of resilience that has caused you also to bring us this message right now? That's a tricky topic. And also in, it's a great one. I love it, Kevin, you know, and, and I hear I'm going to speak more as just a guy, okay. right. Uh, uh, and not claim the kind of authority that's appropriate. Maybe when I'm talking about how to change your brain for the better. Okay. So as a guy, a citizen, someone who's deeply concerned and for my kids and their kids and all kids long-term, um, it is really interesting that uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, a culture, let's say America, and I'm generalizing here, right. in which in terms of material goods, even though median family income has been really flat over the last 35 years, while wealth inequality, particularly wealth inequality, not so much income inequality, wealth inequality has skyrocketed, uh, still the actual material conditions of the great majority of people in America are better than the kings and queens of a century ago, mm. let alone several hundred years ago or longer. And yet many, many people deep down inside don't experience an unshakable, unconditional inner peace, contentment, and love. It's very conditional based on their circumstances and what reviews they got on their book on Amazon or, you know, who, how that, how somebody spoke to them a moment ago. It's very uh, dependent on externalities, which to me uh, makes people really vulnerable and it, it uh, erodes um, self-reliance. So, um, and the result of that uh, kind of unslaked hunger inside, notwithstanding wealth and comfort and medical care and say, you know, and all these various conditions uh, is really a driver uh, for a kind of greediness and consumerism that is accumulating, obviously, its impacts on the planet that our kids' kids and theirs you know, will really suffer. Additionally, here's the thing, too. Our evolution as humans and our ancestors, hominids and primates behind them, is inside small bands. 
we're used to small bands of about literally 30 adults. That's the normal human social group until about 10,000 years ago when agriculture came in and allowed surpluses and larger communities. So think about it, spending your whole life with 30 people, right? That's how we did politics. Uh That's how we made decisions. That's how we governed ourselves in our biology. That's what we're used to in terms of our nature. And in that context, it worked to pass on genes that pass on genes, to cooperate with us and fear, mistreat, and aggress upon them. Fear and mistreat them, empathize with, and, and take care of us. That's pretty much our template. The problem is that now we're all one big us because we're interdependent in this one planet, um, globalization, and even in larger units like America, 320 plus million people. So the problem is when people feel empty inside, or they feel discontented inside, or anxious, not safe, or at peace deep down inside, they're very vulnerable to the classic manipulations we've seen throughout history and in present times of authoritarian bully leaders playing up grievances and fantasies of vengeance. We're very vulnerable to those kind of tribalistic us against them appeals. And we're particularly vulnerable when we don't feel uh, already full inside. So another big reason in terms of the larger implications for growing this unshakable core inside yourself and looking for opportunities to let um, the actual experiences you're having sink in so they fill you up from the inside out is that I think it's actually not to be over the top here, but I think it really is a long-term condition for any kind of lasting world peace. Okay. You, a couple words there. You mentioned the term interdependent and but also you mentioned the word self-reliance, which I know is a focal point of the book. One that I was really interested in. And that is one that's a personal interest to me. I tend to fall on the side of self-reliance to a fault, not depending on others uh, from a faith-based aspect, which we have a big faith-based audience here. Where's my acknowledgement of, of, of God, uh, you know, and however people see that, but for my sake, the evangelical God. And so I've, I've kind of bumped up against that aspect of self-reliance. And yet I, I completely understand where you're getting to it from the book. We have to have that personal responsibility, but there we've got that yin and yang, uh, that I know some people are going to hit and go, Oh, the self-reliance is a, is a, is maybe gotten a, some bad baggage over here. And yet without it, we're, we're flapping in the wind as well. So can you help us maybe reconcile that a little bit? Well, I love that you're going there. And so I have a deep, faith in and experience of God uh, and my sense of that. And, and that for me is integrated with and not at all at odds with uh, a recognition of the value of tying your shoes before you run out the door. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Right. <laughs> and they, they don't take away from each other. And, and for me, a recognition of this extraordinary magnificence of the universe uh, and how it's developed over a long period of time does not at all for me undermine my sense of, of what's divine and transcendental and, mm-hmm. and important. And, and one of the, um, for me, if someone's interested, there are people who are just, they're not going to go here. But for those who are interested here, um, if we want to help ourselves, let the sermon land or the teaching really sink in. Or the prayer take hold of our heart, you know, if we want to help that happen inside ourselves, uh, if you want to help ourselves be more and more given over to the calling 
and our sense of what's really important over time. We can help that happen through the methods that, you know, you and I are talking about here, like, you know, stay with the experience longer, feel it in your body, focus on what's meaningful about it, um, see what's personally relevant about it. I've just listed four factors here in the neuropsychology of emotional learning or deep learning um, that you can apply to spiritual learning as well. Um, the, um, by definition, I'm not a professional theologian here. I'm speaking as a guy, but by definition, that which is transcendental, divine, um, God, is distinct from that which is physical and natural. Otherwise, we wouldn't need those other words on the one hand. And yet the impact of the divine, if you will, the transcendental, including uh, the ways in which people are affected in their felt relationship with that, does proceed through physical changes in this world, including in our bodies and brains. And so if it's of interest to a person, then it is very much to me. Um, you can use the methods we're talking about of cultivation, of development, um, and apply them to your own spiritual development. Okay, well, on that, on the physical aspect, going to this, again, another term that I don't know if a year ago was a term that I was real familiar with is neuroplasticity. I mean, because yeah. you're talking about, we all understand, there's nobody listening here that does not understand the aspect of physically working out to gain muscle, to be strong, to have endurance, whatever. We all know that. And yet it has not been common knowledge in my experience over yeah. my lifespan of thinking about how do I work out my brain? Yes, learning and increasing my knowledge is one thing, but can I actually work out my brain to rewire it, to respond differently, to intake differently, uh, to yeah. be programmed differently. And so you bring that out here, but in your aspect, it feels like this is an, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing my own yeah. as I'm thinking about relating it to myself. This is almost like an, an emotional working out, uh, yeah. that has never been a part of my own personal development perspective or vernacular to think of my, how do I gain emotional? We, we have emotional e, uh, quotient EQ. We've talked about, yeah. this is not a common uh, endeavor uh, of people. And yet you're saying we can be, we can grow this resilience. Our brain is not static. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but again, this is, this is still, uh, yeah, not, this is not a mainstream perspective here or a mainstream again, vernacular, uh, of this and you're saying, and that's what you give the steps that are, and I'll, and I'll divulge here folks, get the book. Uh, cause he <laughs> takes you through these areas and there's, we'd be on that's here for the rest, rest of the day, go through it as I am in studying yeah. this and figuring out how to apply the specifics. So I'm trying to hit some of the broad level issues here. Uh, yeah. but you're talking about that. This is a, a daily yeah. working out to grow. Go, go ahead. No, your, your metaphor, uh, rings true for me as a guy who should work out more and, you know, benefits when he does uh, to, uh, you know, that we exercise certain muscles, we exercise certain capabilities and through the exercise of them, they can develop. If you step back, think about a kid learning to walk instead of crawl or an adult learning how to, you know, deal with tricky in-law situations or think about someone who uh, over time has become calmer and stronger and more patient and, and wiser. You, Kevin, for example, uh, like me, we, we've been in the growth game for a while, right? We've wanted to grow. So we can observe that there is development. You use that word over time. We do develop, right? Most people do want to develop. They want to be happier. They want to be wiser. They want to be stronger. They want to be more loving. They don't want to be bedeviled or haunted 
despite their history, their past, their trauma, that too is a form of development. They want that, but most people don't pay much attention to the how of development, to the actual general process of development, which then you could apply to so many different kinds of things. It's kind of like um, people want uh, different dishes, like dinner or lunch, whatever, and so they learn how to cook better in general, which then they can use for any kind of dish they want to make. Uh, And yet people in their own emotions and what it's like to be them every day and how they are every day with other people, they also want to develop particular things, but they don't pay much attention to the general process, like getting good at cooking. So that's where the brain comes in to kind of cut to the chase here. And there's uh, any kind of lasting um, insight in this realm, let's put it that way any kind of lasting development. You become stronger, you become more patient, you're less bothered by your childhood or your last marriage or last job, whatever it might be, any kind of development, any kind of psychological development requires neural development, mm-hmm. requires some kind of change in the body. Otherwise, we're left with magic. So the question is, how does the body change for the better, yeah. especially the brain? And there's a lot of research on that, but it's really summarizing kind of a catchy saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. So you have this two-stage process. You've got to have the experience of whatever you want to grow. You have to understand the information someone's giving you. You have to feel inspired. You have to feel calmer. You have to feel, you, you have to know what it's like to exercise impulse control on yourself, put on the brakes. You got you to have the experience first. You got to get the neurons firing. But then you've got to help them wire together. Otherwise, the experience washes through you like water through a sieve. It's so poignant, sand through your fingers. And and people have that experience routinely, like they felt it, they knew it, they intended it, something good. And yet, where was it? Where'd that insight go? Yeah. Where'd that new uh, commitment, that, that intention go? Where, where did knowing how to do that go when the pressure was on the next day? Uh, and so... If you want to get any kind of lasting change, you have to help those neurons wire together. And that's what my work's a lot about, the practical how of that. And the practical how of it, there are three methods in particular I'll name here that are really easy to use if you want to help anything land. And you don't need to use them all. Any one of them will work. Number one, stay with the experience for a breath or longer. Stay with it. Keep the neurons firing together. It's absurd if you watch how often we're feeling something good or thinking something useful and we're on to the next thing or, you know, our, our phone pings us or our partner interrupts us or something and gone. So stay with it. Number two, try to feel it in your body, take it out of your head, bring it into your heart. You know, there is a place for useful ideas. I realized in my twenties that growing up, I'd been a nerd, but not a wimp. That was a very useful idea Hmm. for me to have in my twenties, especially a guy. Um, but, you know, ideas are, you know, are a lot of ideas. People have all kinds of ideas. I know a lot of people who know they're, you know, a decent person. They have the ideas of self-esteem, but they don't experience self-worth, right? So try to feel it in your body, help it sink in to your body. And then third, focus on what is rewarding about it, what feels good about it or is meaningful. Uh, any one of those three methods are like hacks in a sense for your brain will help whatever you want to gain from your experiences to sink in. And the more you do it every day, the more you're going to steepen your growth curve, your return on investment Mm -hmm. in effect each from the experiences you're having each day. 
Well, what really stuck out as I was digging into your message was one that when you ha- especially when you have that positive experience, as you just said, stay with it for a breath or longer. And you actually use the term that got in my craw a little bit of otherwise it's wasted. I thought, oh, that's, that's heartbreaking. One, how many things am I seeing that I am wasting instead of just, just a breath or longer to bring it in and let it start rewiring. But then the other piece of that, that I was so caught by, uh, Rick was your writing on the negativity bias. Um, and going after any endeavor, I like to get the cards on the table. Okay. Let's just talk. Let's just get it all out there. What are we up against? And you saying, okay, as we go on this endeavor to take the positive, to let it stay for a breath or longer, to let it rewire our brain, let's get the cards on the table. We as humans have a negativity bias and folks listen to this, uh, from what Rick wrote, you, uh, he said, our brains are like Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones. I don't like that, Rick. I don't like hearing that. I don't like accepting that. And yet when I look at what I tend to ruminate on or ponder, even as a positive person, an optimistic person, the thing that we joke about, I just did a a recording with Tom Ziegler before you and I got started here. And we so often find ourselves talking about, you know, the reviews in iTunes about the show or the book reviews or whatever you get. And the 20 raving reviews, those are great. It's that one stinker review that sticks in your craw. And you're saying, Hey, that's just the brain. That's how we are wired. Uh, but that's a huge statement for us to get on the table and say, we as humans across the board, none of us get out scot-free on this one. We tend to have a negativity bias. That seems pretty monumental for us to have as a known filter to capture, especially as you're telling us, take the positive and stick on it for a breath or longer. It's, it's really haunting to get that. And, and we all know what it's like, just like you said, like, for example, um, <clears throat> Uh, our kids are with us for the holidays right now, and it's really sweet, 31, 28, you know, age-wise, and it's all going great. And uh, I won't say which one, but anyway, everything's really great. But there was a really brief little spat, I'll say it's my son, with my son yesterday. It, it Literally, it lasted less than 20 seconds. It was a little interaction about how I moved one of his things that he got for Christmas. And, um, man... That just landed. And, and also, again, I'm a guy who's worked on myself. I have a pretty deep keel in the water. So it's humbling. It's really humbling and so human, common humanity, right? Uh, to realize, holy moly, uh, this little spat, a 20-second little spat about a stupid thing, about living together, basically, uh, really, really bugged me and stayed with me for hours. And I had to use my little secrets, my methods to kind of clear my head of it. And um so it is really striking. People go through performance reviews, right? At work, right? They, they give you 10, you know, 10 points of feedback. That's nine are positive. One is room for improvement. What do you think about yeah. <laughs> and obsess about and come back to again and again? It's yeah. sad. Uh, it, if you just take people in general and you put them in one situation where they're trapped and traumatized, you can teach them to be helpless for the rest of their lives. One episode. And, and definitely multiple episodes like that. But it takes many times as many experiences to acquire a feeling that you're more like a hammer in life and less like a nail. So, yeah. So for me, uh, the takeaway here is not positive thinking. 
It's realistic thinking. Right. It's to see the whole mosaic of reality, the whole kit and caboodle, warts and all. And to realize, though, that those flashing red lights are usually a small fraction in the total mosaic of a typical person's day and life. There are some people whose lives are, are truly dreadful, and um, I'm not trying to paper over what life is like for them, but research shows in general, and I think people can look at themselves, if they just kind of look around their physical environment, most everything around them is working. Uh, it's pleasing. It's not great, but it's good. Uh, they go through their day. They're having a variety of experiences with other people. Most of them are neutral to pleasant, to enjoyable, the hot dog vendor, where they get their coffee, the joke in the elevator. Um, most of what they actually experience in their body, you know, pleasant body sensations, mostly, you know, neutral to pleasant emotions, gratitude, you know, a sense of ease, getting stuff done. And yet all that is gone. Just like you said, it tends to get wasted on the brain. And what pops out is the negative. So for me, the takeaway to cut to the chase, number one, see the negative that's real, muster your resources to deal with it for sure, for the sake of yourself and for other people. Two, watch your brain's tendency to get captured by the negative, to get hijacked by it and ruminate about it, obsess on it. For example, going over resentments against others, going over self-criticism again and again and again, beating yourself up, or anxious preoccupations that you can't do anything about again and again and again. Um, that is really bad for you. That's toxic. That sinks right into your brain and affects you um, down the road. And then the third thing is really look for those opportunities for authentic, beneficial experiences. Um, they um, will be much more than just smell the flowers. You know, moments of accomplishment, those emails you get done, completing a task, interacting with another person, uh, relief, um, you know, a sense of connection with, with a friend. Lots of little moments like that, knowing how to be more skillful the next time. Look for those, I call them beneficial experiences rather than positive experiences because it's easy to trivialize um, these kinds of things. What's, in, what's useful or what's enjoyable? Look for it. And when you see it, just like you said, don't waste it. Um, give it to yourself both out of kindness to yourself out of it, out and out of generosity to other people because of what you said earlier, that as we fill ourselves up, we have more to give to other people. All right. I do want to point out that I pursued you for this interview. I didn't, uh, you didn't come to me trying to sell books, but folks, I want you to know we were probably a fourth or a third of the way through the book on the points that just stuck out to me that I felt like were, were highlights. Um, it, it's, significant. I'm going to be working through this, but there's still a couple more. And one on uh, kind of on the, the tangent we were just at, when you get in the book about talking about grit and agency and agency being in essence, the opposite of helplessness. And here's a line that I pulled right out of the book. It takes, it typically takes many experiences of agency. And can I say, um, Give me, give me a, a layman's term for agency. Uh, I'm being a hammer, not a nail. The cue ball, not the eight ball. Okay. You do two rather than you're done to. Okay. So uh, taking responsibility, not being a victim. Uh, so it takes many experiences of agency to compensate for a single experience of helplessness, yeah. uh, which again, more negativity bias. And what came that popped into my head was victimization. So if we look at this pursuit of, 
a grit and agency of having that reservoir, that reserve. If you are somebody who has experienced one to a hundred, uh, a, a month, a year, a childhood, whatever of, uh, helplessness of, of victimization, uh, you, <sighs> I mean, this is not good news for those people. You, there's hope, but yeah, yeah, there's more work to be done. And again, to get the cards on the table there, it, it this is, this is significant. Yeah. Um, first I, I like, I'm okay with the word victim. It's gotten a bad rap sometimes. Yeah. You know, you're walking through a crosswalk, the light screen, some jerk hits you, knocks you out, puts you in the hospital for a month. You're a victim yeah. and there's, there's virtue in just calling it. Yeah, you victimized me. You got me. Right. Bad on you, and now I got to recover. Um, point one. Point two, uh, I think it's very important to bring compassion to yourself when you're dealing with stuff and a sense that you're, you're normal. <laughs> it's normal to acquire helplessness. Yeah. It's normal to brood over slights or hurts or bad reviews on iTunes yeah. or, or Amazon. That's, that's normal. You don't need to add insult to injury by getting mad at yourself for being normal. That said, it's also on you. What are you going to do with it? What are you, how are you going to help yourself going forward? Right. And that's where, for me, the two key takeaways. One, um, when you're in a situation, as we often are, where we are at the effect of things, we're an effect of different causes. Our bodies got an illness. Uh, somebody betrays us. Uh, the economy's, you know, <laughs> bouncing all over the place. Uh, um, when that happens, uh, focus on what you do have control over, what you can exercise agency over. Can you choose the salt mm -hmm. over the pepper? Can you pull your attention out of X and rest it on Y? Because um, you can exercise agency over mm -hmm. your own attention, which is your most profound and fundamental property. And lots of people all day long are trying to take your property from you. They're trying to take your attention mm -hmm. over somewhere else do their agenda for better or worse. So you can exercise a, some kind of agency, even just how you see things, the frame of reference, the meaning you give to sitting there in the hospital waiting room and there's nothing you can do when someone you love is in surgery or maybe in the last weeks or hours of their life. Uh, what, what, how, what kind of meaning can you give it or what kind of frame can you hold it in? Uh, can you choose to reach out to your sense of the divine? Uh, in that moment and exercise some kind of cause there. So when, when you're in the pickle, when, the, when you're in the, the real bummer of the situation, uh, look for what you do have influence over. And then more generally, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, uh, in general, and to uh, recover from what's called learned helplessness because it's acquired over time. It's not innate. It's acquired. Um, look for all kinds of places where you can exercise influence. Reshape your desk. Uh, reorganize your closet, say something to somebody else, choose to not say something to something else and be really aware of the feeling of cause rather than an effect, a mm -hmm. doer rather than someone who's done to. Really be aware of the feeling of choosing and I'm determined. I'm going to pick my course and I'm picking it and I'm going to go after it. And as you do that, stay with that experience for a breath or longer. Feel in your body what it's like to be a chooser, what it's like to be an actor, an agent, rather than someone, you know, to whom things happen and you can't do anything about it. Feel it in your body. And third, focus on what's rewarding, what feels good about being, you know, the cue ball rather than the eight ball. And that will help that experience sink into you of feeling 
like an agent, feeling more like a hammer and less like a nail. You can learn agency, just like you can learn happiness. You can learn emotional intelligence. You can learn mindfulness. You can learn agency as well. Well, and I appreciate you saying that, that if we have a tendency in this instance to say, let's to, to, to initially feel helpless in a search situation, you're saying that is, that is learned and you can learn differently. It's not Pollyanna. It's not glossing over. It's not minimizing. Um, but that is a learned right. response as, uh, opposed to just the natural reaction, which probably is going to back to your, back to the uh, negativity bias is probably going to have us all veer towards that helplessness automatically, but can we relearn over here? Okay. I, I want to, you know, three needs, which I could have led the whole thing with the three needs, but, uh, however, I organically uh, came to my questions here or my own thoughts. Uh, I have it as the, the last piece here, the three needs that you cite that we all have safety, satisfaction, and connection. Um, I, at the risk of, of, uh, approaching this from a negative bias, I guess I am curious though, when you lay that out, I want to know what are the things that I am, I could ask you for myself or I could ask you for the culture and I'll just let you answer it. However, it germinates for your own mind. Where do you see us sabotaging or what are some highlight saboteurs in our culture? And we can say America of, uh, where we are hurting our needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, if that's a fair question to pose to you. Well, wow, deep stuff. So <clears throat> bit of frame here. Uh, in biology and psychology, uh, the idea of needs is actually really important. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we're going to have well-being, we need to meet our needs. Because if a person isn't safe, and they don't feel safe deep down, and they don't feel satisfied. I don't mean that they've got a million bucks in the bank. I just mean they have enough food to eat, mm-hmm. or they're able to you know, accomplish meaningful goals in their life. And if they don't feel connected, if loneliness, for example, loneliness is the new smoking. There's, a lot of, there's research that shows that the experience of loneliness, distinct from enjoying solitude, like I'm an introvert. I like being alone in wilderness. It's one of my favorite things. Um, Eating dinner alone with a good book is also one of my favorite things. It's okay, right? But still, to feel lonely actually impacts long-term physical health Mm -hmm. and longevity as much as smoking half a pack of cigarettes each day. Wow. Loneliness. Loneliness is a health risk. So if if you're going to have well-being, right, you need to meet your needs. Also, resilience, if you think of it, it's not just uh, in a vacuum resilience is about meeting our needs it's in the service of our needs that we uh benefit from having resilience so we can meet our needs and also help others meet their needs so what are our needs right Mm -hmm. and uh basically there are different ways to sort these out like maslow's hierarchy of needs different models but they really boil down to basically three things we avoid pain we avoid threats for safety we approach rewards, um, goal accomplishment, food, healthy pleasure for satisfaction, and we attach to others uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, Working together, common cause together, raising a family together, making love together. We attach to other people and we need to feel that we matter to other people. So to feel really connected to them. So those are three very, very fundamental needs. And it's in reference to their needs this is what's really useful, that people can think about 
what would be good to grow inside me these days? Rather than being kind of at a loss, like what am I trying to develop in myself these days? Or what would really help me with a certain situation? You can ask yourself what need is being challenged. So for example, Mm. if you're worried uh, about something, if you've got a health scare, that's a safety issue. It's nice to be grateful for other things. That's great. But that meets your need for satisfaction. It doesn't address that underlying anxiety. It might distract you for a while, but it doesn't really get to the root issue. It's kind of like if you have a flat tire, putting more gas in the tank is good, but it's not going to fix your tire, right? right? So in the book, uh, both hardware and happiness and resilient and on my website, rickhanson.son.net, freely offered, they are different kind of like models or lists of if you have, you know, need X, this is resource Y that's targeted, that's matched to that particular need, inner resource, inner strength of one kind or another. So that's a really useful thing for people to think about. So that's at the personal level. At the cultural level, you know, uh, I love America. I love the vision of it. Uh, The founding fathers are amazing. Uh, The the play Hamilton is just a mind blower. It's fun to watch bits of that. Um, uh, On the one hand, on the other hand, when you just kind of think about America, contrasted to other uh, developed democracies in the world, called industrial democracies, they're called. We rank dead last in so many metrics. We're not number one. We're number 25 in so many things. Child health, uh, one in five kids in America lives below the poverty line. I live in California, one in four in California. Just think about that. What it's like to be a kid. You're innocent. It's not your fault. It's not for lack of effort or any other reason, and you're growing up in poverty with a lot of issues there. Um, you know, healthcare, uh, certain aspects of, you know, trans, uh, fair elections, you know, things like that. We've got some work to do. And um, I think that uh, there are things we could do to uh, take care of people's physical safety. You know, I think four and a half million kids in America last year experienced a lockdown in their school mm-hmm. out of fear of a shooter wandering around the hallways. That's, that's bizarre. My dad owned guns. You know, I'm, I'm not uptight about that. Uh, but come on, four and a half million kids a year experiencing a lockdown in their school with traumatizing effects often. Something's wrong here. There are other ways to do it, and other people are skillful. So for me in general, there are things we can do. But recognizing this is oneself as a person, recognizing that there's room for improvement does not mean you think something is horrible or bad or you're ashamed of it or you're disloyal to it. You can do both. You can see issues in your family, in your own mind, or in your community or country. And I want to make them better while still loving, you know, and appreciating what you got. Well, just with that term of well-being, I mean, is there anything more I want for my wife, for my children, Mm -hmm. for my staff, for my friends than to add into and to encourage, support, help their well-being? I mean, it's top of the list for me. It's what inspires me and motivates my day. And with you saying, if I want to do that, the first place I should start is my own well-being. Again, it's easy for me to nod in my head to. It is a different thing for me to really embrace that and reorder my life around that, my days around that. 
And, uh, Rick, I'm going to take this book home to my wife, uh, today. We're still on Christmas break here and I want to talk about this. Uh, it's a, it feels like a gift. I thank you for it. I thank you for accepting, uh, this interview. I'm excited that you're about to, uh, go off on a year sabbatical and bring us something else. Uh, thank you for giving your time. Thank you for the work you do to bring this message to us. Well, thank you, Kevin. You're a wonderful, uh, person to speak with about this kind of thing. And, um, Again, I hope I didn't blather on too much. And, and anyway, I really wish you well. And, and I see you offering a great service to other people. Uh, and I guess I would just like to emphasize that a lot, I think, of what deep down motivates us is a, a selflessness, yeah. a generosity. But to sustain that generosity over time, we have to feed ourselves along the way. That is, that's right there. Sustained generosity. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Rick, a blessing. Thank you. So how hardwired do you feel regarding your happiness, your calm, your resilience? I'm betting the need and the opportunity has just drastically been elevated for you. Again, you can find Rick's books at Rick Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N.net. Uh, but I really encourage you to go to this website, thefoundationsofwellbeing.com where you can engage with Rick and follow this methodology in your own life. Again, the foundations of wellbeing.com. And if you got value from the show, please let Rick know, do him a favor and us leave a review in iTunes for the Ziegler show and mention him specifically coming up next in show 648. I hearken back to show 643 that we did with Carrie Newhoff, where we discussed his message, didn't see it coming, overcoming the seven greatest challenges that no one expects and everyone experiences. We got so much good feedback. I wanted to hear from you, your real life stories. So I asked this question on Facebook from the list below, which area that everyone experiences to a degree do you feel is most challenging for you and why? And I gave them the list of the seven greatest challenges from Carrie's book, which are cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride and narcissism, emptiness and burnout. The response were incredibly candid and while diverse, really overlapping and connecting is really interesting and eye-opening. Michelle Prince joined me to talk through as many of the comments as we could. We were just touched and inspired. So till then, folks, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.